get your Bibles out and open to John 17. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you for your goodness. And we pray that as we open your word this morning, that you'll, you'll speak to us, that you'll minister to our hearts, Lord, and you'll draw us close to you. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I kind of, um, as I got to my office, sometimes I'll kind of scroll through Facebook or something while I'm kind of waking up a little bit because I get here pretty early in the morning on Sundays. And I was reading this article, and the article left me pretty disturbed, deeply disturbed, in fact. The article said that the actors who played C-3PO and R2-D2 didn't like each other in real life. That wounded my heart. And furthermore, Wayne and Garth didn't like each other in real life. They had issues. Can you believe that? That like shatters a, a lot of my childhood. Right, they seem to be such, such buddies on the screen. And behind the scene, there was, there was no unity. There was no love for one another. In John chapter 17, Jesus is making intercession on behalf of the disciples. He's going before the Father on behalf of the people that he loves and cares about. And you remember the setting, of course, Passover dinner's just completed. This is just seven verses before the eventual arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. This is the, the last evening that Jesus and the disciples have together. And he's spending some time in prayer for his guys. And we don't know for sure exactly where John 17 takes place. We know at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let us go from here. And the opening verses of John chapter 18, Jesus crosses over the brook Kidron and heads into the Garden of Gethsemane. So it's somewhere in between there, probably closer towards the brook Kidron there. He's almost at the garden. And he's just strolling along with the guys and having a bit of time of prayer with the Lord. And, and I like that idea. I like that Jesus is just out for a stroll. And as they're, as they're walking along, he's offering up prayers to the Father. And, and what I like about that is this. There's no wrong time or wrong place for prayer. Right? There's no inappropriate time to enter into communication with the Father. And as we get into the text this morning, we're going to see Jesus, he's going to kind of finish up all of John 17 in this high priestly prayer by praying for, for unity among the believers. And that's really the main theme that we're going to see this morning in, in verses 20 through 26, is, is unity among the believers. And the sad reality is, often it seems like there's very little unity in the church, doesn't it? And, and, and this, this lack of unity in the church, it manifests itself in a couple of different ways. Sometimes it's church against church, and sometimes it's believer against believer. And I admit, you know, I, I love Calvary Chapel churches. I, I've grown up in the Calvary Chapel movement. I started attending Calvary Chapel Grants Pass 
in Southern Oregon in 1986-ish. I, I, I love our, our church history. I, I love how Chuck Smith sort of embraced that whole counterculture hippie movement and, and he didn't put an emphasis on suit and ties and outward appearances. You know, I, I love how he emphasized the spirit-led church. I love Calvary Chapel's teaching of the word, their, their philosophy of ministry. I love you know, Pastor Chuck's emphasis on how God doesn't call the equipped, but he equips the called. I, I think that we are a, a great group of churches. I think that we're a God-honoring, spirit-led, Bible-teaching group of churches. But is that to say that we're the only true church? Finally, after 2,000 years, we figured it out. I mean, the Baptists got pretty close. But we, we finally nailed it, didn't we? No, of course not. Right? Are the Baptists going to hell? Are the Nazarenes not saved? Are, 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 are Assemblies of God churches not really believers? Of course. Of course not. Of course, they are believers. Don't, don't, <laughs> let, me, let me clarify what I'm saying there. And, and do I agree with all those churches on every single point of doctrine? No. Do I think that every aspect of their philosophy of ministry is correct? Probably not. Nonetheless, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're all part of the same church. We're all the bride of Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1646, says this concerning the church. If you want to look it up, it's section 25, verse 1. It says, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered unto one, under Christ, the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him that fills all in all. And the word Catholic there, of course, means universal. It's not referring to the papacy in the Roman Catholic Church. He's talking about the universal church. He says, it says the, the, the whole number of the elect, all believers, past, present, and future. Right? That's what the church is, he says. The church isn't Calvary Chapel Edmonds or Calvary Chapel or the church in America. It's collectively all believers, past, present, and future, gathered into one under Christ. It reminds you what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 3. He says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. That speaks to this, this unity that we have in Christ. And with that in mind, I think it's wrong to spend our time looking for faults in other Jesus-loving, Bible-believing churches looking to tear down other denominations or other churches because they don't look exactly like we do <clears throat> and they don't believe exactly the same things that we do. If all churches look just like us, if all churches look just like Calvary chapels, there would be a net loss in the body of Christ. Not every church should look the same. Not every believer should look the same. Right? The Lord... He manifests himself differently in our lives. He manifests himself differently through our personalities. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean 
we should all wear matching shirts with little name tags and ride bicycles, like some. Right? When everyone looks and acts and dresses the same, you know what that is? That's a cult. I remember when I was a kid in the mid-80s, we visited Antelope, Oregon. You remember what was going on then? Uh, his name was uh, Rajneesh Piram. And we visited old Rajneesh's compound. And um, so we went in and visited, and, and we joined up. I stayed for three years and sold incense and tended his ostriches. No, we didn't do that. But we really did visit him. And we got there, and it was crazy. You get there, and everybody is wearing these maroon jumpsuits or maroon robes. And it's kind of walking around like zombies. And it was most definitely a cult. And, um, and the problem with cults is most people don't realize it's a cult until the last day, right? The problem with cults is people don't realize it's a cult until the Kool-Aid's getting poured out. And they're like, ooh, but it's too late. But and we'll see in this passage that Jesus, he isn't calling for that cult-like uniformity. Right? There's a difference between unity and uniformity. He's not calling for one ultra-mega denomination where every single church looks and acts and worships the exact same way. The thing with unity is, is it's, it's a, a relational thing. It's not an organizational structure. Right? It's our fellowship with Christ that holds us together. It isn't denominational paperwork or some legal agreement. And I think a lot of us have experienced this. You know, I've traveled a fair bit, and, I, and I've met Christians from very different cultures. I've met believers living in huts out in the jungle or in the Russian taiga, and, and we share virtually nothing else in common except Jesus. And that's enough. When you meet other believers, there's this unity, there's this, this bond of fellowship when you don't have anything else in common. And I think that within the church, our diversity is a great strength. I admire some of our, our charismatic brothers and their, and their zeal and their excitement. I respect some of our, of our more reformed brothers in, and their commitment to sound doctrine. That doesn't mean I agree with all of them. It doesn't mean that I agree with every aspect of doctrine or, or philosophy of ministry, but they're still family. Right? And we share that bond, that fellowship with Christ. And even worse, even more devastating to the church, I think, is when, when a local church body is divided against itself. When there's division in the church, when there's backbiting, when there's, when there's gossip and slander, when, when, when people do and say things to one another that are, that are unkind and unloving and unchristlike, that's devastating to a church. John sa says in um, John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. You will have love for one another. Jesus says that's that's a defining characteristic of the church, of Christians, that we have love for one another. The defining characteristic isn't the way you dress or how holy sounding your prayers are or how much money you put in the basket when it goes around or how many gold stars you have next to your church attendance. 
Jesus says, the defining characteristic of your Christianity is your love for one another. And I hope you get that. You know, at church, we have a lot of people who come through who don't know the Lord yet. And, and oftentimes, they don't behave like believers. And that's get fine. I get that. I don't expect unbelievers to behave like believers because they're not believers. But when I see believers who have been coming to church for years, when I see believers who, who should be leaders among their peers, who should be mature in the Lord for all the years in the faith, and they're still engaged in so much foolishness and quarreling and backbiting and gossip, and, and, and she looked at me wrong, and he said this to my friend, and grow up. You're adults. Act like it. You're not 12. Paul says to put childish ways behind you. Jesus says in Mark 3 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. If we're warring against ourselves, if we're fighting against ourselves, right? if the church is lined up and you're picking teams to do battle against each other and it's not softball or something, man, that's a tragedy. And you know, Satan, the devil, he wants nothing more than for you and I to, to fight against each other. Because he knows that that will render us completely ineffective against, against the forces of evil. Remember, Jesus is talking to the disciples in Mark chapter 16. In verse 18, he says this. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We read that verse... And sometimes we get this idea that Jesus is saying, right, the gates of hell are going to come and they're going to attack the church. And luckily, the Jesus is strengthening the church and, and the church isn't going to collapse under that attack. But that's really the opposite of what the verse is saying. For one thing, gates don't move, do they? They're stationary. Jesus isn't saying that the gates of hell are going to come attack us. He says that when the church moves to attack the gates of hell, the gates of hell aren't going to hold up under our attack. Every Christmas, our family watches the whole, now it's, the, I talked about this before, the all of the Hobbit and then all of the Lord of the Rings. And, and that's, a, that's a lot of movie to watch. But um, there's this one scene in The Return of the King, and you guys might remember this scene. The armies of Mordor, they're, they're gathered there around Minas Tirith, and, and they've got the city besieged. And they bring out this big battering ram to knock down the doors, and it's on this frame. Remember that big battering ram? It's, the, it's that big wolf's head. And, and the, the giants would bring it back, and they release it, and it would slam into the door. And after a few times of, of it slamming the door, it finally broke the door down, and the armies of Mordor were able to pour in. And, and, and that's sort of the idea of this verse here. When, when we gear up, when we attack the dominion of hell, it will be defeated. When we release our full strength and energy against hell, when the church collectively does that together, the forces of hell can't withstand that. That's what Jesus is saying. 
When that happens, people will be saved. And so Satan, old Slufa, he's no fool. He's seen it happen before. He understands that. And so he will do all that he can to keep the church divided. He'll do all that he can to keep the church inverted, fighting against itself. Because if we're at war against each other in our church, or if we're at war against the Baptists or the Nazarenes or whatever, we're not taking the fight to the enemy. And so think about that. The next time you're tempted to gossip or start a fight with somebody or you're harboring bitterness in your heart, you're acting as an agent of Satan. When you behave in that manner, you are being used as a tool of Satan. John Corson tells a joke. He tells a lot of jokes, but I'm going to share one of them. He says there was this boy, and he was in fifth grade, and he um, was practicing to be a magician. And so he's been practicing, he's working on his craft, and, and one day his teacher calls him up to talk about it. And she's talking about, you know, all the work that goes in. She says, well, what's your best trick, Johnny? And he says, sawing a girl in half. And he says, wow, that is amazing. And then she kind of moves on. She says, how many siblings do you have? She says, I have six half-sisters. And uh, <laughs> so much of the church has been attacked, has been sawn in half by other believers, by, by members of the family. And so Jesus, in these next six verses, addresses this issue of, of unity among believers. That was a long intro, just to get to the first verse we're looking at. We'll, we'll move along now. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Look what Jesus says here. He says, I'm not only praying for the 11 guys who are walking beside me right now. I'm not just praying for those who have already put their faith in me. He says, I'm praying for all believers throughout all of history. Every single man, woman, or child who will ever put their faith in me. You know who that includes? It includes you. It includes me. You know what else it includes? That person sitting on the other side of the aisle that you're angry at. That you can't even look at you're so angry with. Right? All of us together, Jesus is talking about here. Remember what he says, in, um, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7.25? He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And look at what he says at the end. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. It says that Jesus ever lives, that he always lives to make intercession for us, for those who draw near to the Lord. And that's good news, isn't it? That Jesus is constantly praying for us. And think about that for a moment. Some 2,000 years ago, back in that upper room, Jesus was praying for you. And that person that you have an issue with, that you could, could work out your issues and that you could live in brotherly love. David says this in Psalm 133, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. 
I think parents understand this verse better than most. I have five kids now. And at any given moment, at least two of them are fighting about something. Right? Elias is mad that Isaiah's playing with his Xbox. Eva's upset that Isaiah's fooling with her little toy iPad. Isaiah's mad that Silas ate the rest of his cereal. It's always something. And I know that I'm not the only parent to ever experience this. But every so often, all the kids miraculously are getting along. They're all loving each other. They're all playing nicely. They're, they're, they're sharing instead of screaming or fighting. Nobody's bleeding. And it's wonderful. It's good and it's pleasant when, when the brothers and sisters in my house dwell together in unity. And the same is true in the church. Yeah, it seems like there's always some kind of internal strife going along. If somebody's not getting along with somebody, there's some fire to be put out in the church. But every so often, things just click. And the church is rolling along, and everyone's loving one another. Nobody's in a fist fight in the parking lot. Nobody's in jail. And everyone is worshiping together in unity as a family. And as a pastor, that blesses me. But more importantly, that's a blessing to the Lord. Right? He looks down and he smiles when he sees all of his kids loving him and loving one another. And, and note the last phrase of that verse. But also for those who believe in me through their word. So Jesus is not only praying for the disciples. But he's praying for all those who will believe through their word. When you read through the verse, especially some of your other translations, grammatically it's a little funny. It's not very clear. What Jesus is saying is this. I am praying for all these disciples and all who will come to faith through the message that they will proclaim. Jesus understands that it was the job of the disciples to carry on the message that Jesus communicated to them. It was the disciples' job to make sure that future generations heard the gospel message. And think about that. That's Peter. That's James. That's Simon the Zealot. That's John. That's Matthew the tax collector. Right? This isn't the cream of the crop. Right? This isn't the pick of the litter. There weren't corporate headhunters out trying to recruit these guys. But they were successful, weren't they? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to accomplish their mission. And you want proof of that? Here we are. But we're the proof that they did what they were supposed to do. We're the proof, we're the evidence that they continue to, to send forward that gospel message. It's the job of every generation of Christians to make sure that the next generation of unbelievers has an opportunity to believe. Right? It's not our job to save anybody. And we can't save anybody. But it is our job to introduce people to the Savior. It is our job to communicate the message, to give people an opportunity to believe. Jesus' last words were, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Your job is to share the gospel with those who have never heard it. 
And that's the whole reason why we weren't Star Trek transported up to heaven the minute we got saved. It's our job as believers to communicate that gospel message to the people around us. And you know, each one of us, we have different gifts, we have different callings, we have different abilities, but they're all different aspects of that same job of making disciples. And if you're not doing your job, the whole process gets bogged down and it becomes ineffective. And and that's why Satan likes to cause division so much. Satan doesn't have to mess up the whole church. He doesn't have to get the whole church to fall into sin. You just got to get one or two people warring against each other. And that can mess up the whole church's spiritual progress. Remember um, Joshua chapter 7. The people had just entered into the promised land. And remember that promised land is sort of typological. It's a prophetic picture of the, of the Christian life. And remember the people, they enter into promised land and, and, they, and they come to Jericho. And Jericho is this, this walled city. Jericho is a, a stronghold that they were called to destroy. The problem was Jericho, right? It's a fortress. It was impregnable. No, nobody could conquer Jericho. And the Lord says, don't worry about that. Just walk around it real quiet for six days. On the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times and then blow your little trumpet. And the people obeyed, remember, and the walls fell down and the Lord gave them this amazing victory. And the Lord says, listen, guys, in this particular battle, the spoils of war belong to me. No one's to take anything from the city. No silver, no gold, no clothes, no animals, nothing. So, right, there's this great victory. In the next chapter, the people are sent out to conquer Ai. And just so you understand, if Jericho were Seattle, right, a large, powerful, wealthy city, Ai would have been Briar, right? Nothing. No power, no wealth, no might. And so the people, they march out against Ai, and they get whooped, don't they? Right? They, they end up running, like they throw down their armor, they throw down their swords, and they run home. And they get back after this astonishing defeat, and Joshua is distraught. Remember, and he falls on his face before the Lord. He says, Lord, what happened? We, we trusted you. And the Lord replies in Joshua 7, verse 11, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. And they had taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. The Lord says, all right, here's what happened. Somebody in your camp didn't follow my instructions. And you remember the story that they cast lots and they narrow it down to the tribe of Judah. And then they cast some more lots and they narrow it down to the clan of the Zarephites. And they narrow it down to this man named Achan. And then Achan finally confesses. He says, yeah, there was some silver there and there was some gold and there was this really pretty jacket. And so I took him home and I, and I hid him under my tent. What lesson do we learn? In this whole story of of Achan and Ai, we see that one man 
or one family's sin affected the spiritual progress of the whole group. A little infection, it messes up the whole body, doesn't it? And we've used this analogy before, but you get one little teeny ingrown toenail and you can barely walk, right? You're dragging yourself out to the car, you know, it's horrible. And it's nothing, it's such a small thing, but it messes up the whole body. And likewise, when just a little part of the church is out of whack and it isn't functioning like it should be, it stops the whole church from functioning properly. So Jesus says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays that they will be one, that the disciples will be one as we are. And Jesus, of course, he's talking to the Father. The Father and the Son dwell in perfect unity, in perfect fellowship, in perfect love. And Jesus says, Father, let them, let the church experience that same level of unity and intimacy as we do. Let them share that with us and let them share that with one another so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Please don't miss the significance of what Jesus just said there. He says, so that the world will believe that you sent me. Apparently, in part anyway, the world believing the message of Jesus Christ is dependent on the level of unity that we possess as the body of Christ. And think about that for a minute. When a stranger comes into our church for the first time and they see that we all love one another and that we care for one another and that we're different from the world, say, you know, I, I want that. I want that love. I want that unity. I want that sense of, of family and community. But if they come into church and they don't know the Lord and they find strife and bitterness and war and gossip, I don't need to come to church for that. I have that at work. I have that at home. Why do I need church? In large part, we as the church, we as believers, are responsible for the way people perceive Jesus. We're responsible for the way people see and understand Jesus. Right? Their belief, to a degree, is hinged on our behavior. Think about that. The way people view God, what people believe about God, is based on how you and I live our lives. People coming to church, people becoming the church, is sometimes linked to our attitudes and our behavior. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. What is the glory that Jesus gave us? What, what is it that he gave us 
so that we can experience that same level of, of fellowship that Jesus has with the Father. Right? There's a few different ideas. Some people will say that this is a, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. But I don't really think this fits the context, right? Pentecost hadn't happened yet. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Here's what I think that Jesus was talking about. This word glory, it's doxa in the Greek. And it, it means glory, but it also means approval. Remember a couple of times in the New Testament, God the Father shows up and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus was approved of. He was honored. He was glorified. In the same way, we're approved of by God when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we're made right. Our, our, our sin is removed. We're no longer cut off from God. We're made clean. Now we can have that same fellowship with each other and with the Lord that Jesus had. I think that's the glory that Jesus is talking about here. Being approved of and accepted by the Father. That acceptance, it allows us to have fellowship with God. And without it, we're cut off. We have no access. Remember the book of Hosea? Remember the Lord commands Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And he goes out and he marries Gomer. And after they're married, remember, Gomer goes out and she, she has two sons with, with other men. And the kids' names were, were Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhama. And um, Lo-Ami means not my people. And Lo-Ruhama means not loved. And, and you remember the story. Hosea, he goes out and he finds his unfaithful wife. And she's, she's sold herself into slavery. And remember, he, he buys her out of slavery, and he brings her home, and he cleans her up, and he receives her back into the family. And after all that transpires, remember, the Lord changes the names of the boys. He changes Lo-Ami's name, not my people, to Ami, my people. And he changes Lo-Ruhama, not loved, to Ruhama, loved. And, and, and the symbolism there is obvious. It's symbolic of what the Lord has done in our lives. The Lord did a work. He reconciled himself to his people. And we were, we were Lo-Ami, not his people. We were Lo-Ruhama. But the Lord received us back and we become his people. We become children of God. We're, we're loved by God. We were once not the people of God. And now we are. And we'll talk about that more in a couple verses. I in them, verse 23, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus says, Father, you are in me and I in them. Let them experience that perfect unity, and the world will know that you sent me. Again, Jesus is kind of reiterating what he said a couple verses ago that our unity will reflect the reality of the message that we bring. Our life and our unity will be evidence that the message we bring is different from all the other messages that people are inundated with, that every other truth that people have been hearing. Love is the evidence of a changed life. Love is the evidence 
of transformation taking place inside of you. And look at the next part of this verse. Jesus says, you love them even as you loved me. I want you to understand that. Jesus says, the Father loves each one of us just as dearly as he loves Jesus Christ. That's crazy, isn't it? The depth of the love that the Lord has for us is just as deep is the love he has for Jesus Christ. That's hard to grasp. And think about this. Right? John says that God is love. Every action, every thought, every motive is based in love. Right? The Father, he can't love you any more or any less than he does. His love for you is perfect and complete. And his love for you isn't dependent on your love of him or your faithfulness or your good deeds or any of those things. His love for us is independent of our actions and our behavior. God's love for me isn't based on who I am. His perfect love is based on who he is. It's based in his perfect character. God and his love has adopted us into his family. He's made us a part of the family of God. Remember that word church in Greek, ekklesia. It's a compound word. It's kaleo and ek. And it means those who have been called out. Right? Those who have been called out of the world. And those who have been called into the family of God. Those who have been received into the family. Those who, as Paul says, have received the spirit of adoption. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. Remember that word Abba is Aramaic. And it means Papa. It means, it means Daddy. And, and that's the relationship that the Lord desires for us. When I, when I travel, you know, sometimes I'll go teach at a Bible college somewhere or something. You know, and I'm gone for a week or two. And, and when I get home... My kids are so excited to see me. As soon as I sit down, one of them's plopped in my lap, and the other ones are right next to me, snuggled beside me, and they just want to be near me. And, and, and I love that so much as a father. Almost, almost makes me want to go away just so I can come back and, and get a little bit of that. I always look forward to coming home. And, and, and that's, the, that's the nature of the relationship that we're talking about here. We can cry out, Abba, Daddy. Because we've been received into the family. We've been adopted into the family of God. We were once enemies of God. We were once at war with God. But through his love, we were drawn in. Through his love, we were won over. Through the love of the Father, our hearts were melted. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. People read this verse often and think Jesus is saying, I want my disciples to be, me where I am, be with me where I am. And, and, and they commonly misunderstand what Jesus is saying. They think Jesus is saying, 
I want my people to be with me in heaven to see all the glory. And it kind of makes sense, except where is Jesus when he prays this? Is he in heaven? Right? He didn't say where I will be in a few days. He says where I am. Where was Jesus when he was experiencing this glory? He was in fellowship with the Father, in unity with the Father, and that's what he's talking about. That was the glory that Jesus is talking about here. The glory of being in perfect unity and perfect fellowship with the Lord of all creation. Right? Even before the world began, even before creation, this whole plan of salvation and redemption was set in place. And it talks about Jesus the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus going to the cross. This, this was always the plan. And we're going to see that more in the coming weeks. He goes on in verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Note this. The world... Society at large, the culture around us, doesn't know the Lord. And they might know something about the Lord. They might talk about the Lord. They might have some, some spiritual vocabulary. They might know how to toss out some religious-sounding expressions. But Jesus very clearly here says, the world doesn't know the Lord. They're lost. They're wandering. They're stumbling in the dark. Because they haven't met the Father yet. Jesus says, the world doesn't know you, Father, but I know you. And my disciples know that I was sent by you. I have made known to them your name, verse 26. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The or Jesus says, I have shown you to them. Remember in John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip is talking to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Show us God, and we'll be satisfied. And that's a, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Show us God. And what does Jesus say? How does the Lord reply? He says, Philip, you've been with me all this time, and you still don't get it. He says, if you've seen the Father, or he says, if, sorry, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, I have revealed you to the disciples. And he says, I've revealed who I am to the disciples. The Father and I are one. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus calmed the sea. Jesus raised the dead. He worked all these miracles. And he revealed that he was more than just a man. More than just an itinerant rabbi. Some teacher. He revealed that he was God in the flesh. He revealed that he was the physical manifestation of God. As Matthew says, he was Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. 
And so Jesus here, he says, I have revealed you. I have shown the people who you are. And I will continue to do it as long as I'm here. When they believe in me, he says, I am in them. Remember what he wrote in um, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Remember, he's talking to the church in Laodicea. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus says, I will come in to him. He says, I, I, I'm knocking on the door. And Jesus says, if you answer the door, I will come into you. I'll come into your heart. My, my spirit will indwell you. I'll, I'll abide within you. I'll make my abode inside of you. Jesus in verse 26 here, he says, your love is in me and I am in them. And your love will be in them too. I hope you see the picture that Jesus is unfolding here. This is, it's kind of a weird set of verses. It's kind of, you, you kind of stumble a little bit as you're reading it. The grammar is weird, the text is weird, it's kind of jumbled up. But I hope you see the picture that Jesus is painting. This picture of, of the Father and the Son dwelling together in, in perfect unity. And Jesus is saying, that's the type of relationship the Lord wants to have with each one of us. And that's the relationship that he wants each one of us to have with one another. But here's the thing. You have to get the order right. Being in per perfect unity with people doesn't happen until you're in fellowship with the Father. You know, sometimes we, we, we try to get it the other way around. And we think that if we can get right with people, then, then we can get right with God. But it's fellowship with the Father. It's being filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ that allows us to experience that peace and that love and that depth of fellowship with the people around us. It's only through the Lord that we can find real peace in this life. And if you're missing that, I encourage you to turn to the Lord. To allow him to work inside of you. Allow him to reveal himself to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness, Lord. There's a lot in this passage, Lord. It's kind of tough to work through. But we pray that you will just take your word and you'll work into each one of our hearts, Lord. And you'll help us to walk in, in unity with you and in unity with one another, Lord. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.